0: After Abimelech, um, who we talked about last week, there are a couple of more judges in Israel who only get a passing mention, not a lot is said about them. Their names were Tolah and Jair, and they were not great. They were ostentatious. They were, you know, all about themselves. And then comes that dreaded phrase, quote, again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, end quote. And that sets up the next cycle. We're to a part of Judges where the stories are less of the campground entertainment variety and a little more complex. Even Gideon last week was more complex than the previous heroes. Uh, And this time, the cycle is more extreme than it's ever been. The Israelites start worshiping all the gods of all the nations that surround them. In Aram and Sidon in the north, the chief deities are still Baal and El and their consorts although they go by different names in different regions. But the main gods we need to pay attention to in this story are the god of, the, of Moab, which is Chemosh, and the god of the Ammonites, which is Molech. The names Chemosh and Molech seem to be used interchangeably back in the a in the ancient Near East, and appear to refer to the same deity. So who is this Ammonite god? Well, Molech means king. You might have already guessed that. It's the same word as Melech, which we've run across several times already. And the worship of Molech involves child sacrifice. Remember that throughout the Bible, God makes a big deal of how much he hates this practice and this idol in particular. The Israelites have run amok. So the Lord again steps out of the way and allows the Philistines and the Ammonites to conquer Israel. But this time, it's only the part of Israel east of the Jordan River on the side where the Ammonites live. So who are these Ammonites? Well, their origin is with Lot. Abraham's nephew. These are the people descended from the incest between Lot and his daughter. And like the Moabites, they're related to the Israelites, but they have long since become both their enemies and the enemies of God. Note to self, you may have already realized that Amon here in the Bible is where current day Amon Jordan gets its name. I want to make it clear that the things I say about these Iron Age Ammonites should in no way be perceived as a reflection on the nation of Jordan today. Anyway, the Ammonites have been pretty weak up until this point in the Bible, and they're trying to expand westward from the fringes of the desert. They've always considered all this land as their rightful heritage. I've zoomed in some here. Um, See the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, and here's the Jabbok River. uh, We've run across it before. The Ammonites' main concentration is here at the eastern end of the Jabbok River, where it splits and runs north and south. And this whole area is called Gilead and is the region allotted to the tribe of Gad. Gilead seems to change hands, sometimes being in Israelite control and sometimes not, as we saw in the story of Gideon. And things have come to a head between the Ammonites and the Israelites. The Israelites in this region have been oppressed by the Ammonites for 18 years now. And they're crying out to the Lord. And the Lord says, I have already saved you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Midianites. I've even saved you from the Ammonites in the past. And every time you have forsaken me and gone to serve other gods, I will no longer save you. Go seek help from those other gods. And the Israelites cry out, oh, we are sorry. We would rather submit to your hand, Yahweh, than to the hand of the Ammonites. Please save us, then punish us however you want to and they proceed to get rid of their foreign idols, and they truly begin to serve the Lord. But still, (laughs) Shirley says they're consistent. Yes, they are. But still, they're suffering under the Ammonites, and finally, the Lord can't stand to see their suffering anymore, so he enters into the situation. The hot spot, as you can imagine, is Gilead, right where a man named Jephthah lives. Now, Jephthah is literally a bastard born out of wedlock. It says his father is Gilead. Now, you could interpret this to mean there is a man in Gilead named Gilead, but I don't think that's the best interpretation. I think this is saying that anyone in Gilead could have been his father, and therefore all of Gilead is his father. It then says Jephthah is thrown out of Gilead by those born legitimately those who do not want him to share in their inheritance. Those half-brothers in this case represent all of Gilead. So Jephthah moves further east, deeper into Ammonite territory, to a place called Tov, where he becomes a skilled warrior and draws other men to him. They are adventurers, ne'er-do-wells. Everett Fox calls them empty men. Just like Jephthah, these men are bereft destitute, mistreated, outcast, and over time, they become men renowned for their fighting skills. As the region hurtles towards war, the Ammonites begin to amass their forces at Gilead, while the Israelites gather at Mizpah. But Israel has no one brave enough to lead the attack. Finally, the elders travel to Tob to ask Jephthah to lead them in battle. And Jephthah says, wait a minute, aren't you the same guys who threw me out and exiled me here? And they say, yes, but we're desperate. So Jephthah strikes a deal with them. He agrees to come lead the war effort, but the elders must make him leader, not just of the army, but of all of Gilead if he wins the battle. His first act as leader of the army is to open diplomatic negotiations with the Ammonites. After all, he's been living among them most of his adult life. So he sends a message to the king of the Ammonites saying, Why are you attacking us? And the king of the Ammonites says, When Israel came up from Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River. And all I want is for you to give it back to me. And Jephthah says, You're kidding, right? You've forgotten your history. That land was in the land of the Amorites with an R, not you Ammonites with an N. If you remember, when Israel came out of Egypt, we camped in Kadesh and sent messengers to the king of Edom asking for safe passage through his land. But he refused, and we sent the same message to the king of Moab, and he refused as well. So we stayed in Kadesh we finally were forced to travel all the way around the mountain range and come up on the eastern side of Edom and Moab. Then we sent messengers north to Sion, king of Amorites, asking him for safe passage. Not only did he refuse, he mustered his troops against us, but the Lord fought for us and defeated Sion, and we took all of the Amorite land you are disputing from the Arnon river to the Jabbok river. So I don't know what you're complaining about. The Lord gave us this land. And later he gave us the land of the Moabites when King Balak tried to attack us. So if the Lord gave this land to us, who are you to lay claim to it? If you have a problem with it, go talk to your God, Chemosh. And furthermore, We've held this land 300 years. Why are you just now pitching a fit over it? Why pick on us now? Why pick on me? I've never done anything to you. The king of the Ammonites has no answer to this. The spirit of the Lord wells up in Jephthah and he gathers his troops and advances against the Ammonites. As he goes into battle, he makes a solemn vow to the Lord. Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out of the door of my house when I get back will be devoted to you entirely. I will offer it to you as a burnt offering. And so Jephthah plunges into battle. The Lord is indeed with him, and the Israelites rout the Ammonites and are finally freed from their 18 years of oppression. When Jephthah returns home, the first thing out of his front door is his teenage daughter, his beloved only child, singing and dancing and celebrating his great victory. Jephthah, heartstruck, Tears his clothes and cries, no, oh no, my daughter, what a miserable and wretched man am I. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. I must offer you as a burnt offering to the Lord. Stunned, his daughter comes close saying, father, if you have given your vow to the Lord, then you must fulfill it. You must do just as you promised, for the Lord has avenged you on all our enemies. But please do not sacrifice me today. Please give me two months to go up into the hills with my friends and grieve, for I will never marry and our line will die out from this earth. Yes, says Jephthah, go. And he lets her go for two months. She and her girlfriends go up into the hills and weep. At the end of two months, Jephthah's daughter returns and her father sacrifices her as a burnt offering to Yahweh in fulfillment of his vow. The story ends saying that from this came the custom of young Israelite women making a four-day pilgrimage each year to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah of Gilead. Now, this is a tough, tough story, and there are some distressing layers here. So what do we do with stories like this? How can we approach them to understand why they are in the Bible, what they say about God, and what they say about us? In her book, Texts of Terror, Phyllis Tribble selects four horrific stories from Scripture and looks at them from the point of view of the women involved. One of them is the story of Hagar, which we've already read. One is this story of Jephthah's daughter. One is a story we'll read at the end of Judges. And one is the story of Tamar during the time of David. Tribble tries to show how the church has watered these brutal stories down and at the same time has developed an attitude of misogyny from them. Her book is powerful and easy to read, and it's a classic pioneering work among biblical scholars. I highly recommend it. Tribble points out that Jephthah's words are all about him, about how his daughter has grieved him by being the first one out the door. It's a sort of this is all your fault statement we frequently hear from the powerful. That is exactly the sort of subliminal messaging that Christians hear when we read this story. We have to be careful what we pattern our behavior on. Reading texts like this through the lens of the victim rather than the powerful is extremely important so we can make sure we are not perpetuating similar atrocities ourselves. And what was Jephthah thinking in making such a vow in the first place? What did he expect to come out of his house? A goat? A servant? Did he fully intend it to be a human sacrifice in the first place? Yahweh had already resolved to rescue Israel. He had heard their cries for help. They had already turned back to him. This was a completely unnecessary vow. Yahweh was going to save them anyway. The spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, before he ever made this vow. So what do we do with this story? How do we make sense of it? Let's add Tribble's tool to our backpack and apply it to this story. This new tool is called a hermeneutic. I've added it to your backpack in the study guide. Hermeneutic is a big word that just means lens it's important to put on different lenses as we study. Although you can use any lens, it's easiest to start by going through each character in the story and standing in their shoes and viewing the story from their perspective. Use their glasses to see the story. Remember that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, so it's very helpful to read the stories from God's perspective from the bottom. Obviously, Jephthah's daughter is the one on the bottom here. So Tribble looks at the story from her point of view, and she notices that even in the tragedy and injustice, there is a seed of agency within the story itself. Not only does the victim claim her two months of respite, her existence is not wiped out. Even though she has no children, Her memory is kept alive and honored by the women of Israel, and she's memorialized forever here in scripture. So who has the greater faith, Jephthah or his daughter? Tribble points out that the daughter, the one denied even a name in this story, is the one with the greater faith, hidden, deep, quite literally self-sacrificing faith. And yet, it is Jephthah who is given all the glory, both in the story and later in the Bible where the story is remembered. In the New Testament, Jephthah is the one included in a list of giants of the faith. Of this list, the author of Hebrews says, these men are ones who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions. Quenched the fury of flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Tribble's question is why is Jephthah the one in the list of giants of faith, but not his daughter? The answer reveals much about who the writer of this New Testament passage values. These are subtle messages conveyed to us by the wrapping paper that surrounds these stories in scripture. And if we are not aware of the cultural bias of the authors, if we do not take care to sort the gift from the wrapping paper, the cultural wrapping paper will result in terribly misguided attitudes, especially towards the marginalized, the ones given no voice in the passages. This kind of attitude is exactly what Jesus fought, and this is what we must be fighting today. Only a couple of weeks ago, we saw the terrible fruit, misguided, hardline, militant attitudes have yielded in Christianity. Studying scripture using the tools I'm giving you is not just an optional intellectual exercise. It has real implications for us, for our churches, and for the world. But just because one tool yields good fruit, when we apply it to a difficult passage, doesn't mean it's the only tool we should try. And I'm going to walk you through how I determined to use and then how I did use another tool in our backpack, how I figured out which tool to use, and then how to use the one I picked. You may not realize this, but I don't have these lessons prepared in advance. I have not taught all this stuff before. I've taught big chunks of scripture, but I've never taught Jephthah's daughter before. Nobody teaches this pretty much. And so when I sat down to do the research and to reflect and to prepare to teach this passage, it's different than reading it. I've read it a million times, but but interpreting a passage, digging into it and understanding it, means I have to take my backpack off and start digging out my tools. So here's the process that I went through while I prepared. Notice, I noticed that the story of the Ammonite invasion begins in chapter 10, where the elders of Gilead search for a leader. But in chapter 11, it's like none of that has happened. And we're suddenly being told the story of Jephthah's childhood, Then the story hops backwards into the narrative about the Ammonite invasion and the search for a leader. When you see the narrative of a story hop around like that, or when the elements don't flow smoothly, that's a clue that something is going on underneath the words. When that happens, there are several possible explanations. We've run across three possibilities so far in earlier lessons. The lurch could be due to an intercalation where one story is inserted right in the middle of another one. That doesn't seem to be the case here, though, I thought, because chapter 10 and 11 are the same story. It's just the chronology that's messed up. So it's not an intercalation. So then I thought it could be because the author is using a couple of different versions of the story as his source material that he tries rather unsuccessfully to blend together. We saw this back in lesson 10 in the story of Joseph and his brothers. But the story of Jephthah doesn't seem to hop back and forth throughout the story. It's just got this herky-jerky lurch at the beginning. So I don't think it's two different sources. So I tried another possibility, the third one, that this story might be in the form of a chiasm. For those who don't know what a chiasm is, It's a literary device named after the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. The ancient writers absolutely love chiasms. We learned about chiasms way back in lesson six. What they do is arrange the elements of the story very carefully so that the events in the beginning of the story exactly mirror the events at the end of the story. And this serves to highlight the central point of the story, right where the X crosses. I love it when I discover a chiasm in a story because it's like going on a treasure hunt. If I do the work to identify the chiasm, it will show me exactly and without question what the author's intended main point is. The center of the X marks the spot. It's like a secret code embedded in the text for thousands of years. And I love that kind of a puzzle. So let's see if we can find a chiasm in this story. If it's there, we won't have to look very hard. They're quite obvious once you start looking for them. The easiest way to tease out a chiasm is to identify the event or statement at the start of a story, and then look at the end of the story to see if the end mirrors it in some way. Let's do that. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, tell us Jephthah is a bastard. He is unloved and is cast out by his brothers. At the end of the story, verses 34 through 40, tell us Jephthah's only daughter, is beloved, and is sacrificed by her father. That's perfect. That's exactly how a chiasm should work. The end mirrors the beginning, but has been transformed in some significant way by whatever has happened in the story. Here, we have the reflection of being a bastard versus being an only child, of being unloved versus being loved, of being rejected Versus being sacrificed. So if it's truly a chiasm, the very next thing that happens at the beginning should be mirrored by the penultimate thing that happens at the end. Let's see if it works. At the beginning, in verse four through nine, the elders plead for Jephthah to fight for them. And at the end, in verses 33, 32 through 33, Jephthah fights for them. That works. Now I'm starting to get excited. It looks like it might indeed be a chiasm. Back to the beginning. In verse 10 and 11, the elders and people give Jephthah power. And Jephthah makes a vow before the Lord at Mizpah. At the end, in verses 29 through 31, the Holy Spirit falls on Jephthah, giving him power. And he makes another vow, this time to sacrifice whatever comes out of his door first. Wow, this is definitely a chiasm. Look how precisely these mirror each other. Next, in verse 12 through 13, Jephthah sends a messenger to the king of Ammonites saying, what do you have against us? And the king responds demanding land. The mirror to that would be in verses 27 through 28. Jephthah asks the king of the Ammonites, what do you have against me? And this time, the king is silent. See how absolutely meticulously this story is constructed? It is a carefully formed chiasm. Plus, the beginning parts seem to be emphasizing the group, whereas the ending parts seem to focus at a singular individual level. We're not skipping any verses. I'm not making anything up. I'm not forcing it in here. We're taking the verses in the exact order they appear. Next, in verses 14 through 20, Jephthah recounts how the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt and how Israel tried over and over to pass through each of the various kingdoms, but Edom and Moab rebuffed them and the Amorites attacked them. The mirror verses are verses 23 through 26. It's phrased as a series of questions. If the Lord has given us this land, what right do you have to the land of the Amorites and of the Moabites? I notice that Edom is not listed separately in the second half. So the author may be treating Edom and Moab as a single combined unit, since they're both south of the Arnon River boundary and not part of the territory the Ammonite king is disputing here. And finally, We reach the point in the story where the X crosses, where the beginning and the ending meet, where group interests and actions meet individual interests and actions. It's in verses 21 through 22. It says, then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing it all from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. This, then, is the author's main point of the whole story. It's not Jephthah, it's not his daughter, it's not the vow, and it's not the sacrifice. The important point that the author has gone to great lengths to highlight is that the Lord God is the one who gave the promised land to Israel. God did it, God alone. By learning to read the scripture with the eyes of the ancients, Using the tools, recognizing the patterns and the culture of the ancient writers makes all the difference in the world. Taken together, these two tools have unearthed a wealth of meaning in what started out as a bewildering passage. We now know that this story can be boiled down to one statement. The Lord alone gave the promised land to Israel. And we now know that because of the wrapping paper this story is in, especially the child sacrifice, we have missed the point. We have allowed the victimization of the young woman to color our Christian thinking, devaluing her, erasing her name, and lionizing her father as a great man. And we have let that misogyny take root in our own culture. But this story is not about what a great man Jephthah was. He is deeply, alarmingly flawed. This story is about God. We need to understand what the gift is saying about God, while also becoming aware of how the wrapping paper has influenced our thinking. This is powerful stuff. These are powerful tools, necessary and important kingdom work. We'll do some more digging in our breakout sessions today, talking about how we might approach thorning problems like this, where one commandment of God seems to contradict another. What do we do when an unbreakable vow is made to God, but the fulfillment of that vow would be anathema to God? What do we do when the Bible contradicts itself? For your discussion today, skip the entire first page in the study guide. That's only food for thought. You can go back to that on your own. On the second page, you'll find two tables. I'm going to walk you through the two tables so that when we break out, you can go directly into the questions and and not have to reread these tables. Table one is a quote from the law of Moses. It says that nothing a person owns and devotes to the Lord as a burnt offering can be redeemed. The Israelites cannot make a monetary contribution rather than doing the burnt offering once a vow is made. Notice that this command specifically includes human beings as potential burnt offerings. This chapter says that any human being, quote, devoted to the Lord for destruction must be sacrificed as a burnt offering. Kind of horrifying, huh? Table two is a couple more quotes from scripture. The first quote is also from the law of Moses, and it says that anyone who sacrifices their son or daughter in fire, like the other Canaanite nations do, is detestable to the Lord. So right there, within the law of Moses is an apparent contradiction. It's pretty a big deal kind of a contradiction, like do we sacrifice people or do we not? The second quote is in table two is from later in the Bible. God is saying that Israel did, after all, end up sacrificing their sons and daughters to Molech and that God did not command them to do that, nor did it ever ever even enter his mind to ask them to do such a thing. In the breakout sessions, you'll talk about the conflicting commands in these two tables. So don't take time to reread the tables when you go into your groups. Skip straight to the questions or else you won't have enough time. And be sure to only spend a couple of minutes on questions one and two. Then move and spend the bulk of your time on questions three and four. They're the most important questions for your discussion. Let's talk for a bit. There's really kind of two big parts to the question. It was uh the first part was how do you reconcile just the fact that in within the Hebrew Bible there are these conflicting commandments even within the law of Moses? Uh and the second part is what do we do with that now given, you know, the whole arc of uh scripture that we now have access to. Um so Talk to me. What what did y'all what did y'all come up with
1: here? Gail, you know, one thing that we came up with was that this was not God's vow. This was Jethro's vow. You know, he made a, he made a human vow. Uh, he obviously regretted it as soon as he saw his daughter come out of, of her front door, his front door. Uh, and I'm sure he was a broken man uh, in the process. And that's I think in part why he gave her two months. And I'm just wondering what happened for to, to him. I mean, we talk about her, but what about his reaction for those two months. I'm sure he was a, he was a man, I man that he had made a vow that he can't back up on. Yeah. That, I like that.
0: that, that it was a human vow and it was obviously <laughs> a stupid human vow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: that, I like that. I think
3: someone in our group said that it was important to think about what you say, what you think. Mm, yes. You know, before you yes. let it out of your lips. Yeah. Yes.
4: Yeah. Uh, another thing that, that we noticed um, is that it's similar in some ways to even what we see today where people are told, you know, encouraged to sort of negotiate um, with God, but for personal gain. Rather than um, with a broader vision, you know, like prosperity gospel message, you know, um, if you give money to this church or you send money to me or you, you know, whatever. You get me a new jet plane. um, God will (laughs) bless you with riches untold and blah, blah, blah. Um, And in here it's, you know, God, if you give me this victory. Then I will give you this, you know, the sacrifice, whatever comes out at the door, not, not finding the difference between animal and human. And it's almost like God is telling them in Leviticus, um, this is a cautionary tale, be careful, because if you dedicate a person to be sacrificed, you can't change your mind. Mm-hmm. Think very carefully before you open your mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if um, given the contradictions, even within the law of Moses about whether God wants human sacrifice, I'm wondering if this is an indication that perhaps that earlier passage in Leviticus was very definitely cover colored by um, the common common Uh, commonality, I don't know what the right word is, but the common practice of child sacrifice in that region already. They just assumed that was part of the law and wrote it in there. Not necessarily that that's what God said. Do you see?
2: That's kind of what I said. That's kind of what I said is that I think that it it gets hard sometimes as God's children. um, We're sitting here trying to discern God's words when we're living in a counterculture. And we've let the effects of the counter-culture infiltrate that message. And, you know, I was pointing out that even as a kid in Sunday school, we heavily teach the Abraham-Sarah Isaac story. And Marlene was saying that her daughter's in seminary and that they teach it that that was a misunderstood story, that God was horrified that Abraham would do that. And I know growing up, we were we were taught in Sunday school that it was like God's commandment, but before he could do it, he rescinded, you know, it was like, Oh, you know, it was a lesson. And so I think that as you mentioned, cherry picking some stories because like every kid I probably know that's been through Sunday school knows the Abraham Sarah Isaac story, but not, not the extent of these laws. We don't put this in with it. And so we're kind of misleading personally.
3: Our group added to that was, um, we said that um the humans were making the vow it was not a god ordered thing it was the humans making that vow and the god specifically said hey i don't like that but if you make a vow you're gonna have to stick with what you say but that doesn't mean i'm ordering it because i'm not
2: right.
3: and that actions have consequences our words have consequences
1: you know in a way in a way you could argue that by making this vow in the first place, Jephthah was sort of falling back on his worship of the other gods. Exactly, mm-hmm.
3: you know, and he didn't even need to make the vow because God had already told him He was giving
5: him the victory.
4: It's true.
5: Yeah. Yeah. The thing yeah, I thought of too. Is he said, "Whatever comes out of my house," so unless he lived with his stock in his house, he had to know it was mm. a human that was going to come out, mm. and. That makes sense, Woody, that he went back to his old beliefs in the old idols. Yeah. That they need he needed to sacrifice a human. Yeah. That's uh, and, what
4: it Yeah, and, and 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 Joe mentioned that as well, that if all the surrounding culture, child sacrifice was not only common, it was expected by the gods. Um, and Jeff you know, is growing up, you know, has been kicked out of home and is living out in this culture of child sacrifice, it would not be unexpected that Jephthah would make this kind of vow because that would have been expected by those who were worshiping Molech. Gail,
3: I had a question just reading through this. I didn't know about Jephthah's daughter. Is there any other human sacrifice other than Isaac Jephthah's daughter and Christ that we don't
0: know about? Um we are going to not ritual sacrifice like this there there's a whole lot you mean within Israel, of course. um there's lots of it out yeah. in Canaan, you know, but Right, but no these are the these are the three examples um, within the context of worship of our God. Uh, however, we're going to hit another story uh, at the end of Judges that's even worse than this one. It's not child sacrifice, but it's worse than this one. Um, and and we're going to make it through just like we made it through this one. Uh, we're going to use our tools. We're going to not panic. <laughs> We're going to not think that God is has all of a sudden become something horrible, um, and we are uh, we're very near to our time cutoff. So I'm going to make a few comments, but then after that, I want to whoever can stay. I want to go to those the second part of the questions. Um, and I said, uh, pardon, I said good because
2: I have a question for that.
0: Okay, good. Yeah, I'll stay as long as y'all want to. But um, I want to draw out the fact that you can just look in tables one and two. And in the uh, scripture that I added in the questions following that, that there are clearly direct contradiction within the law, within scripture, within the law. It's in one place it says, you can do human sacrifice and the other place and make sure if you plan to do a human sacrifice that you follow through with it. And another place it, it um, says, don't you dare do a human sacrifice. That's not what God wants. I want you to face that and hold that paradox in your hands as you walk through scripture. If you haven't listened to earlier lessons hold that paradox in your hand as you listen to earlier lessons. Because I want you to understand that there is a lot of cultural human influence spoken through these authors as they're writing this stuff down. And I want you to not literally or figuratively, Sacrifice your own children based on a passage in scripture. I don't care what that passage says. Because that is not the heart of God. It's going to make me cry. Because that's where a lot of my ministry is, is to parents who are sacrificing their children based on a passage they've read or been taught. I want you Mm -hmm. you to feel very grounded in your faith and in God and in understanding how to approach scripture, like you guys were just saying, far more holistically as Mm -hmm. God's word. Yeah. And that's the quote official end of class. Um, but let's talk about uh the uh what else other questions you had, whether the other discussion you had, and I particularly would love to hear your own examples in your own lives of where um this has happened.
3: Hey Gail, our group was kind of um unique in that we kind of had the whole gamut of belief systems from what this group represents the you know when you were talking earlier about how we come from different backgrounds and different um, places where we are in our religious walk and uh, Julie and um, Gordon and I were together and we're all at a little bit different place in our walk but we were able to have some really good fellowship and all add to the conversation and have no disputes among us or anything else, just, um, really sharing from God's word together. And I was just really blessed by that. Um, it, it really meant a lot to me for us to be able to have exactly what your goal is for this group represented right there in our little breakout session. And what we basically came up with, with, um, how we should look at all these things in light of, um, you know, the question number three that you had was uh Jesus' two greatest commandments, love God and love people.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And that if we're yeah, looking definitely. at everything through those lenses, that it'll all make sense, it'll all work out. That was our group also, was you the- love each other as we would ourselves.
1: Uh, I wanted to say something. You know, I don't know how you're going to feel about me mentioning it, but I have to mention it. Um, Of course, in the Bible, uh, uh, you know, uh, humanity is on its own, somewhat on its own course toward um, evolving. the, through the through the various stages and and hopefully uh, uh uh you know uh being more what you would call um well evolved or intellectual people but uh, also uh you know I have found you, you know I found a lot of uh, stuff in the Bible that seemed contradictory to me and I I just couldn't understand it and you know. Yes, until I stumbled upon dispensationalism, and to me, the progression of God's dealing with humanity and, and, and you know, the program of God dealing with humanity throughout history, uh, the way that dispensationalism describes it has really helped solve a, a number of conflicts for me. And I, think, and I just wanted to put that out there.
0: I think that, let me talk about dispensationalism for a minute. Thank you, Ross, for bringing that up. That's that's um, a good point. For those who have no clue what that word means, <laughs> that is um, a way to view scripture that was uh, kind of invented um, in the 19th century. And um, it's a framework, it's a lens through which people view scripture, And what it does is it um, divides uh, God's history with his people into sections um, and says God deals with us differently in this different in these different segments of history. So like one of the sections is the, the church after the New Testament. You know, that's one of the, quote, dispensation. Dispensation is just a word for section. Of history, an epoch of history. And um, uh, people use that and then extrapolate that further into what will happen in the future. Um, and when you use that lens, you see scripture in a particular way, just like we used in this lesson, we used the hermeneutic of um, looking from the bottom up. Dispensationalism is a hermeneutic. All right. And just like any other tool, it yields value, but it's not the only tool to use when you're looking at scripture. Its strength is that um, it recognizes that God started with a people who were enslaved living in a barbaric pagan culture who had no clue who he was and he met them there and he spoke to them in their language and he overlooked a whole lot of the stuff they were doing because you can't change somebody all at once. You can't just take them out of their culture and all of a sudden plop them where you want them to be. That's not how human beings work. And so we actually do see that God um starts and he just doesn't sweat some of the small stuff he doesn't sweat the sex and he doesn't sweat the violence and he doesn't sweat a lot of the stuff you know that we're reading about right now, but as we move through what this dispensationalist view would call dispensations, God begins to to grow his people, to bring them closer, to explain to them that some of these things they've been doing need to not be done, <laughs> you know, and that there are other ways, and there are better ways to relate um, to God, and, and, and then we get Jesus, and then um, we have the church, and so forth, and so on, so, you... pardon?
1: Oh, sorry. Sorry, I, I, I want to say one more thing, against dispensationalism, People who hold to it very strictly. Yes. So, I, I don't know if I wanted to. Well, let me just say it now. Yes, uh, as 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 Gail say, you know, you can have uh, they go all the way back to Adamic, uh, Noetic, uh, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Kingdom, Church Age, all these different things. Um, but one thing, you know. And dispensationalists will say we're in the church age and Paul is our apostle. Well, that, that becomes apparent in the Bible. And Romans through Philemon are the only things that really churches should be focused on. But one thing I will disagree with dispensationalism about is that while, uh, while uh, Paul's, God, Paul's description of the gospel is certainly uh, uh, clear when it comes to justification, I think dismissing uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, as a a path towards sanctification is a miss on the on the behalf of dispensationalists. I think those, even though Jesus said I came for for the house of Israel, there were there's many valuable lessons in there for well, the and Gentiles. I,
0: and I would agree. <laughs> I would agree that there are limits um, to the, to any lens. Dispensationalism is one of them. And I actually think it, and I think I've said before, that I think it's a mistake to throw out the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Because you, God is God the same throughout. It's the people that are different. You know, their their wow. culture, where they're sitting is what's different. God is, Jesus was there at creation. He was the word through which creation was spoken. So um, I I want to move from dispensationalism, but that was a a great add, Ross. Thank you. What else do you guys Um, have?
3: Pastor Gail, on the last question, can you think of examples in real life where this sort of thing has happened? How did you respond and what was the fruit of your response? I thought of two examples and shared with our group. Um, The first one was Tuesday, that rainy, cold day, I had to go get lab work done. And right afterwards, I ran to the fast food to get some food after fasting. So I got two large fries and a junior bacon cheeseburger. And I had to go somewhere else. And so knowing I was driving and I couldn't eat that burger, I got the fries thinking, I'll just eat a lot of fries. And then I got to the stoplight. (laughs) with the guy in the sign, and asked him if he wanted some hot fries, and he said yes, and so there went the fries. I wished I had had a New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs, which I have a source where I can get them for three dollars each, and I need to act on that, because there wasn't time to share, but it would have been the next step in sharing God, but It felt good, Um, I didn't need all those fries and he needed something. So there was that. And so that was an act of kindness he received and hopefully he felt blessed by that. And the other story was on the 18th, um, my son had had a lamb on his farm, the first lamb that they had. And it was born lame and did not get on the teeth within an hour, which is crucial. So it was really suffering. And it took two and a half days for it because it would succumb and then it would rally. And then it would succumb and it would rally. So at by the time I got there, my son had dug a grave and yet it seemed as though it was a fighter and it was going to try its best to make it. So he went out there and he was holding it. Now my son is 39 years old and he was holding the lamb and the mother was bleeding for it. And the lamb lamb was trying to answer. And with its last breath, it was answering. And then it passed. He buried it and came into the mudroom. And I could hear him weeping and crying. He was crying very hard. And I wanted to run in there and hold him and tell him it was okay. But being a mature mother, I know he has a wife for that. So I had to hold back with everything in me and manage the grandkids who were quite annoying at this point because they wanted to know what was going on in the other room. And I was saying, let them have a moment. And I think part of that is, I'm tying it back to the sacrifice of your best in your animals. It was so hard because he was holding this living being and soul left. And it was to think of having to give your best, your best calf your best lamb, your best whatever you have to make a sacrifice. That was the sacrifice taken from him and the way it hurt. But to think, what is it when people had to make a sacrifice back then? You know, it must have been a challenge. And then to think of Jephthah and his daughter, that would be excruciating.
0: Yes. And and I and 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 that's a a beautiful example of um what it feels like when and what it must have felt like, you know, to to the Israelites when they made sacrifices. When a sacrifice is meaningful, it's going to hurt, right? Um yeah. but and and I'd like to also ask if you have examples Um, in your lives where you have mistakenly sacrificed a human being thinking it was the right thing to do, thinking that's what God wanted?
3: I know I have. There were many years when I was in private practice and I wasn't raising my children, my husband was. And I was at work and I was not at the ball game and I was not at the dance. Well, I was at the dance recital, but I wasn't picking her up from dance. You know, there's many years that I remember that. And thankfully, I work for the state now.
5: So (laughs) that's a thing of the past. Yeah. Mine was when I was... um we ended up at a very um, strict Baptist church for a little while. And I followed what I thought was the right thing to do. And then later on, it was like, it's become one of my biggest regrets. Um, my parents, because they weren't Christians, according to them, um, because they never went to church, they never talked about God and believing and stuff. They Basically suggested we I cut them out of my life because they were going to harm my children. And I did that while we were there. I didn't have hardly anything to do with my parents because I didn't want them to influence my kids. Then after we left that church, it was one of those God moments I was telling you about. There was one of the churches that God was saying, you know, listen to me and not them. Um. I regret that because not too long after we stopped going to that church, my dad got Alzheimer's and I lost it mentally. I mean, I could go still see him and I could talk to him. And there were times when we talked and he was he was doing really good. And so there were those days. But I thought of the five years I lost from my parents because my mom died of cancer while we were still at that church. And then my dad got Alzheimer's and I lost him. And I thought to myself, I lost five years of my parents because of what somebody told me that, that God said. And I never want to make that mistake again. I don't ever want to make the mistake that people tell me what God thinks or wants me to do. And I am so grateful for this class because I'm learning how to read the Bible and find God and then find the hope even in terrible stories. I mean, God's there and his love is there. And this class is such a blessing because of that. I want to honor your pain, Renee.
0: And your courage. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um,
3: I see it. Almost every day, um, people sacrificing our LGBTQ people because they, of what they believe the Bible says, and them using the Bible to beat them over the head with and all the horrible things that they say to people, trying to convince them that they're a sinner, which isn't even our job to begin with, that's God's job, not ours. And whether you believe that homosexuality is a sin or not, people are driving our LGBTQ, Brothers and sisters away from God. They're driving them away from the church. They're telling them that God doesn't love them. And in my opinion, that is as detestable as the story we read today. Because we are causing harm to people. That God loves. And, you know, I was in that. I was in that group for years. I didn't become affirming until I was in my 50s. And boy, when I came became affirming, did I become affirming. I even got my, my mama bear shirt on today. <laughs> but. Our churches and mass are sacrificing our children on the altar of what they think is right. Instead of drawing people to him, they're shoving people away. And uh, that was the biggest takeaway I took from this
0: today. Yeah, the second... I see your pain, Shirley, and I know it's personal. Um, it's
1: sad. I just wanted to I wanna to say too, you know, some of those people are, are uh, no different than the people two weeks ago who took a Bible into the nation's capital and said a prayer over it. And I I myself uh, have I struggle with how do you how do you uh, bring people to Christianity when when those optics are there
0: yes and and I think that um, part of what I'm trying to draw out and what you guys have done beautifully is that even when we feel like we have learned, so much about who God is and how to approach scripture that we can see behind these passages that are used as baseball bats and as knives to cut people off and kill people. There is, we become them in the, when we use the phrase those people.
5: Mm.
0: we are cutting them off with our words yeah, it's true. because we don't approve of them. And we think they're, they, they haven't done the work to look at the scripture to understand God. They, that they, that they've missed the mark that they, at the very definition of the word sin in the Bible. And so, um, I love that you brought this around to current events, Ross, because um, and I may have posted this uh, on my own page, but there was a um, a document that someone had posted that said, "Well, how do you talk to people who seem to have have some sort of cult thinking, whether it's you know anti LGBTQ or whatever it is? Like the people like in the Capitol. What what do you do when someone seems so blinded?" Um, and um. And the answer basically is uh, relationship and respect and all the things we open the class with. Basically, what you have to do is lay down your agenda. You have to be willing to come alongside that person and say, what is it about this that attracted you in the first place? What is it about this movement or this thought or where did this enter your life and become part of who you are? And only if you're actually interested in that and if you want to know and if you care about them as a person and in helping them unwind the ball that's been wound around them and has snowballed them to the point that perhaps they've gone to murder senators, (laughs) you know, um, in the name of Christ. Only if you're doing that and seeing the person underneath, can you get to a point that you can talk about that point and about that need that they perceived or about where, where they have been, um, they have trusted somebody who is not trustworthy, you know, be it a church or a political leader, whatever, a family member. Right. And you're not always the one equipped to go all the way back to that point and to walk with them. Mm. But we are equipped as a community to do that. Mm -hmm. Amongst all of us, we are equipped to do that. All of us have some small part of that for each
2: other. So if I can, that's a perfect segue to my question. And actually to, to Ross's point as well. Um, you and I had a dialogue when you said you were going to exit Facebook and I discussed, but I like to divide, debate and you're made for fight. It's, I find it difficult At times, and I have to go back and delete some comments or edit or apologize, that I let my fight come out as something other than love one another. And I struggle, like Russ did with this, because I have two kids who've not only left the church, but one's even decided God doesn't exist over the kind of hypocrisy that Ross is talking about. And I, you know, I made the joke the last time about telling him we'll go to church and, you know, outnumber the hypocrites. But I don't know. I'm I'm willing to do the tough battle, but I guess I need help with the right words to engage because I do have friends and family that are stuck right here And I know that there's nothing I can say that's going to open it. Yes, because I
0: think think that um, many times um, what's going to open it is not going to come through the intellect. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And you are gifted in intellectual discussion. And so you are like we, each of us, our gifts are like a hermeneutic that we talked about today. Each of us has a particular lens on life. We each have a particular gift for a particular purpose. Some are screwdrivers and some are hammers <laughs> and some are wash rags, you know. Um, and and um, part, I think, of this, Joe, is in listening deeply. And perceiving, discerning, that's the same thing as perceiving. Perceiving whether the issue is intellectual or actually not.
2: So I'm, I, I'm beginning to think that I don't have that guess. I, say, I grasp it.
1: Sorry. But thank you. No, let me say something. And Gail, you're going to need to check me on this. I may be wrong in some places, but. Um, uh, you know, I'm still learning about this, but, um, there's a good old saying when you can't beat them, join them mm-hmm. and, and looking through some of the, uh, uh, and looking at revelation, uh, uh, Jesus Christ's letters to the churches. And I believe it's in per, it's in relation to Pergamum, the married church. Uh, I could be wrong though. Uh, it's 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 been my uh, um, it's been my interpretation that when Satan couldn't beat God's message, he joined it to the world, and that's what's happening in 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 our world today. People are joining God's message to the world, and as long as they link those two, it's tough to get through to them. I we think that. To be able to, go ahead.
0: I understand exactly what you're saying. And that is a place where. Um, uh, it is helpful to respond with the spirit. Because. um it is the spirit that divides joint from marrow, which is what you're talking about here, Ross.
2: Divides what?
0: Joint from marrow. In okay. using a bone analogy.
2: Okay. I got it. Yes.
0: And and um, and there are very often when you're dealing with someone who has married Christianity to politics. Or uh, religion to the world, and is in a church that has done that, um, or has married um, religion to misogyny. Or, you know, there's lots of, of unholy unions out there, right? Um, very often, an intellectual response. Will not work. And also very often. You cannot form a relationship. Because they're like a hot stove. (laughs) You know. And they will burn you. Um, And so. When I feel myself. Constricted in that place. I remember Jesus example. Jesus. Jesus when he felt himself in that space where he could not establish the relationship that was needed for healing to be able to shed light on the issue with somebody, and he was not in a space where their minds were open enough to have a discussion with their minds and find the way out that way, Jesus was silent. But that did not mean He was powerless. Mm -hmm. And there is great power in prayer for that person, for that situation. And there is great power in being who we are, in being authentic. When an authentic person stands. With in front of somebody who has bought into an unholy union, whatever that is, the authenticity of the Spirit of God will shine forth.
2: And it's answered my question,
3: Joe. I think sometimes, um, It's like Gail said, to be your authentic self and just to live by example, because a lot of times you're dealing with emotion versus intellect or intellect driven by emotion. Sure, sure. And like like you said, I have one of my daughters, my stepdaughter was raised as a preacher's kid and now she's agnostic or atheist, one of the two. And re- raising her children without Christ. But that doesn't mean she's not getting a praying for you message when she needs one. You know? <laughs> <Yes>. That's me.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: My daughter has asked me to not say those words to her. Yes. Well, okay. then in my thoughts. And she needs to know your thoughts or prayers. Oh, I agree.
3: So yeah, I'd I do take taking to telling people, um, um, I'm sending you positive energy or whatever.
0: And, yeah, you know, there's and nothing wrong. The <laughs> there's yes. nothing wrong with using their vocabulary. God did it all the time. <laughs> right? Meeting them where they are. Exactly. exactly. They are. That is <laughs> what we're called to do. That's what it means to be Christ-like. Being Christ-like is being God-like. It's, you know, this, what we're learning in these classes is how to be with really hard-necked, stubborn, blind people, right? So think about that. Uh, We have gone, you know, more 35 minutes over, and you guys are great, and it's time to go, and what a great discussion. Love you. Thank you so much. thank Thank you, everybody. Bye, bye
3: bye. I can't leave until you end it. <laughs> Same. All right. Bye bye. bye. Thank